Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. It seems that no matter how far along we are in our careers, none of us is immune to imposter syndrome. Our guest this week is no exception. This week's guest host is Dr. Melissa Hogan, co-dean of Roosevelt College of Science, Health, and Pharmacy. Dean Hogan sits down with Dr. Chara Reed, Director of Specialty Practice Solutions, in the second episode of our Healthcare Heroes Discussion Series. In this series, we sit down with distinguished leaders in the healthcare field who are promoting social justice by caring for underserved communities. In this week's episode, Dr. Hogan and Dr. Reed discuss how to deal with imposter syndrome, how to effectively lead a team, and how to make leadership in the pharmacy world, more diverse. I will let Dean Hogan take it from here. Enjoy their conversation. Today, we're proud to welcome Dr. Chara Reed. Dr. Reed is the Director of Specialty Practice Solutions at Amerisource Bergen. In this role, she supports community oncologists in the Southeast region for oral oncology dispensing services. Dr. Reed earned her Bachelor of Pharmacy and her Doctor of Pharmacy at Midwestern University. She started her career in chain retail pharmacy and then moved into specialty pharmacy practice, first at Docs Drugs and then at DuPage Medical Group, where she was promoted to Manager of Pharmacy Services, giving her oversight of six oncology infusion centers and the Ambulatory Surgery Center. She then moved to the role of Director of Pharmacy at Illinois Cancer Specialists, leading pharmacy services for five infusion centers and 20 oncologists. Dr. Reed is very active professionally. She's the founder of Pharmacist Women Networking Association and sponsors monthly networking programs. Dr. Reed speaks nationally for the pharmaceutical industry on over 10 medications and multiple disease states. Finally, Dr. Reed is very active with the Alumni Council at Midwestern University, and most recently, she was appointed to the Board of Trustees. Welcome, Dr. Reed. Thank you. Thanks. Wow. Sounds impressive. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so I'd like to start and just talk about your professional roles, starting with what you actually do now. And I know for the students who were able to be at the lunch with us, you were talking about what you do. Yeah. Because that title is kind of mysterious to us. So it definitely is mysterious. What is your overall role and then what is your focus on like day to day what do you do okay so I'll keep it short shorter than what I did earlier with the <laughs> the other students at lunch so director of specialty practice solutions is basically I help practices come up with solutions right I work for Amerisource Bergen and so it doesn't sound like something traditional probably from a company that is a distribution company you know we distribute medications but our organization has many 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 different business units 
And I am part of the oncology supply team, so under the oncology business unit, and basically help support independent community oncologists and healthcare systems with oral oncology specialty pharmacy dispensing. So that could be helping them start a pharmacy. So I have times where I go read the Pharmacy Practice Act of, of a state, <laughs> 170 pages, just so that I can you know, understand what are the rules. Like for, this was probably one of the interesting things that I learned recently. I, was, I have a practice in Virginia that wants to open a retail pharmacy. And so I read the Virginia Pharmacy Practice Act, and you cannot be a PIC in Virginia until you've been a pharmacist for two years. So that is something that's obviously very important for the oncologist to understand because they can't hire a new grad. I don't know they necessarily would, would that would be the best fit, but you, I mean, we have new grads all the time come out and become pharmacists in charge. In Virginia, they don't allow that. So there's, you know, little things, you know, state by state that I'll try to help a practice understand. And then once they're dispensing, then we'll support them through understanding their potentially their payer contract strategy. We'll help them with any leakage opportunities. So are there any medications or are we noticing any trends by looking at their data of medications that perhaps they should be filling that they're not? Are there any other things we can help support them with on a day-to-day -day basis? So yeah, that's, that's sort of what I do in a nutshell. <laughs> that's different every day, including traveling. I travel a lot. So because I cover the Southeast, of course we can do things virtually, but a lot of times I do like to come on site, especially if I'm assessing a pharmacy space or kind of seeing what, what we're working with or even talking to their staff. Because a lot of times if you're on a Zoom call, and the owner is on there or the CEO of the organization is on there and the pharmacy team may be on there. Sometimes everyone's not so apparent with what they need to say. They're not so transparent. Whereas if you go on site, I might walk into the pharmacy, talk to the technician, go into the office, talk to the pharmacist. I might have another conversation with the CEO. I may have another conversation with the physician owner or you know group owners or the practice administrator. So you get pull out different things being on site. So I feel like my in-person meetings are a little bit better. Typically, I usually get a better understanding of what the practice needs are if I'm on site. So I know you didn't graduate from pharmacy school and, and know that you wanted to be in that role. Right. So <laughs> let's go backwards a little bit okay. and talk about, I know you started in retail pharmacy. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your time in retail. What did you enjoy about your position? Yeah. You were there a long time. So yeah. tell us about that. Yeah. So I started working at Walgreens when I was 16. So, which is crazy. <laughs> and so, you know, in high school and undergrad through a major change in terms of like, I changed my major from education to pharmacy or pre-pharmacy, I should say, graduated in biology, pharmacy schools, just, I stayed there. I actually really enjoyed retail pharmacy and I actually, I still do. I like the dynamic of that customer interaction in retail. And then also as a pharmacy manager, you, you learn not all the pieces of the business of pharmacy, but you learn some of the pieces you know, of the business of pharmacy and those roles. And so then from there, 
I was looking, you know, for a change because at that point I had four kids and, and needed to, you know, not work so many nights and weekends. So that's when I started working at an independent pharmacy and we were doing a little bit of specialty pharmacy then. So, I mean, the word specialty pharmacy is new. Like that, that's not a term that was used when I was in pharmacy school. Like it, there was no real such thing as specialty pharmacy. So you know, and so you started kind of hearing this buzz of the word specialty pharmacy, and I was working at Independent, and we were doing some specialty drugs, and basically those specialty pharmacy is the dispensing of what we consider a specialty drug, which the way we categorize that is typically something that's very expensive that requires a prior authorization. So it's kind of those two things. And so we were doing some of that dispensing there at the independent pharmacy that I worked at, and I was able to use leverage that expertise, which I think I thought was expertise, which actually really wasn't, but I didn't know any better. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, I'm a specialty pharmacist now. And so I'm like, so I can apply for specialty pharmacy roles. And so that's when I start working for a very large medical group here in the Chicagoland area to run their pharmacy services. And I was very transparent in my interview because I knew that it said oncology pharmacy. And I was like, whoa, I do not know anything about oncology. I'm pretty sure I didn't do well on my, my oncology test and <laughs> my PharmD year. As a matter of fact, I think I know that I did not do well on that test. And so I never wanted to touch oncology, never even considered that. But I was very confident in the fact that I could run a pharmacy. So I understood how to run a pharmacy just from a big box retail perspective, which actually is a really great experience because you don't even realize how much you follow the law at a big box. And then you go to independent and there's sometimes it's just things are different. And so you, you know, very small things, you, you know, you're like, oh, wait a minute, I think we're supposed to be doing this. And you talk to someone and they're like, really? <laughs> you know, okay, like let's do so you start and then, you know, and the experience of working at an independent, you start to understand what it means then to not have a 30 day supply on your shelves. Like independent pharmacies cannot afford that. They cannot afford to keep 30 days worth of drugs on the shelf. Whereas a big box chain, 30 days, 40 days is like normal to keep on the shelf. So there are some skills that I learned working at an independent pharmacy that really served me well to go work for a medical group owned pharmacy that again, does not necessarily want to keep 30 days of oncology medications on the shelf. That, that's millions and millions of dollars tied up in inventory and you just don't want to do that. So there were things that I learned and took away from both. I knew how to run a pharmacy. Um, I did not know oncology. So I did know that I was going to have to self-educate. And I think through that process of knowing that I did not know oncology, I, I spent a lot of time going to pharmacy programs that were dedicated to oncology. UIC does a, an annual like oncology conference that I attended. And I'll just be very transparent. I did not, like, when you go to an oncology conference and you have clinicians and very smart people talking about oncology from a clinical standpoint, they don't use the brand name, okay? They, they use the generic name. <laughs> so I just, I was Googling 
Because I didn't know what they were saying. I'm like, what drug are they talking about? Because I'm in the retail space and I know the brand names because, you know, they come through as the brand name, but I did not know what the generic names were. So, yes, I was, I'll never forget that conference. I was Googling the names because I was like, what drug is that? Uh, what are they talking about? And so much stuff was going over my head, but I just kept at it. Like, I just kept attending conferences. I also started to attend conferences that were specifically for community oncology. So I found community oncology conferences because what we were doing was community oncology pharmacy, really, is what we're doing. Because we're working with, we're not in, I wasn't in academia, you know. And so anything outside of academia is considered community practice. Not necessarily retail community, but these doctors are considered community oncologists because they're not attached to a hospital or a large healthcare system. So there's a niche space, and there are a lot of community oncology practices. There's one right here in your backyard here in Schaumburg by Woodfield Mall, which you probably don't even know about. I work there too, Illinois Cancer Specialist. And so there was this whole group of people that did community oncology and group of pharmacists that did community oncology pharmacy that I found. So you end up like kind of finding your tribe because you have to create your network because I didn't know anything. And so I started meeting pharmacists that were doing practicing in other parts of the country and were struggling with a lot of the very same things that I was struggling with. And so that was one way that I, I was networking just out of necessity because I needed to be good at my job. And I knew that I needed to immerse myself in to community oncology and I, and the and the clinical, you know, background of oncology to make sure that I was doing justice by my patients and <laughs> taking care of them as best that I could. And so I didn't want them I didn't want patient care to suffer because I didn't know something. You know, so when you think about it from that point, you just kind of do what you got to do. I worked with, I learned what an MSL was. I did not know what an MSL was 10 years ago, a medical science liaison. I, I remember asking a scientific question to a drug rep and they're like, we can't answer that. We have to get you in touch with the MSL. And I'm like, what is that? Like, I didn't know what that was. <laughs> and then, I, you know, and they were like, we'll send, we'll send the MSL to come talk to you about the clinical trial. Great. And they were a pharmacist. I'm like, even better. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, so then you start having these clinical conversations with these medical experts who are PharmDs, a PharmD like me, and you start learning the disease state. You start understanding, you already know how to understand a clinical trial, but you start understanding, you know, seeing what the clinical trial says. And then you're able to, from a clinical perspective, you know, what are the differences then between these two treatment plans or therapies? It, you know, is there a difference? And then, so you, you just start learning, you know? And I just, I was literally just doing whatever it was that I needed to do to become proficient at the job that I was handed, probably very unprepared moving into it. I didn't know that though. <laughs> so I didn't know that. So that, that's what I'm hearing, right? I'm hearing confidence and persistence. And what I was feeling, though, is if I put myself in your shoes at that moment, I would feel like I didn't belong there. I would feel imposter syndrome, which could almost be paralyzing. So can you yeah. talk about your sort of emotional experience as you, sure. as you took on these challenges? Yeah, yeah. No, I, 
I for sure did not know what I was doing. Like, it's legit. So I don't even know that you could call that imposter syndrome <laughs> because I really didn't know what I was doing. But, and I definitely know that, I, and, I'll, and I'll never forget this because at this conference, this very first oncology conference that I go to with very smart people speaking, I remember coming out and one of the rep, one of my drug reps was there and he's like, I can't believe they said this and this. And he's like talking about the clinical trial and he's like, I didn't even know what he, and I was just like, I know, yeah, no, I, I don't know why they said that either. Like, I really didn't know. And I mean, I just remember like totally faking it. <laughs> And feeling like a fraud because I'm like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. And I'm acting like I do. This is crazy. But I think that just drove me to like get knowledge, you know? And so I think when you understand, I mean, I think it's smart to know that you don't know everything. Like that's the most dangerous clinician is when they think they know something that they don't. That's dangerous for patient care. But then, of course, you also don't want to cripple yourself and, and not live up to the challenge. And, and I thought about it this way, that you know every person that's in oncology had to learn it at some point, right? You are in class right now. They are giving you the building blocks to be a clinician in any space. You know? And so if we're all given the same building blocks, we can all build a tower however we want to build it. You know, because you've been given the pieces to understand, you know, you know, Dr. Lee, she taught med lit like and so she taught us how to break down a clinical trial, how to understand, you know, what are the pieces that we're looking for to make a trial good or not? What are the biases, you know? And so you're given those building blocks and you're given those tools here. So never think that you can't do something, you know, so you do have to have the confidence to know that you can do it know that you it's okay to not know to be honest about that you know and I, I have had to learn that you know that if someone is asking me something and I legit have no idea what they're talking about that it's okay to say you know I'm not sure about that but like let's dig into that and and that's again a skill that you learn in pharmacy school and so you are given all the pieces so you don't ever have to give in to that feeling that you don't belong or that you don't deserve to be there. And I certainly have that. I still have that at moments that I'm just like, you know, going to a board of trustee meeting is a very intimidating process, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I'm like, why am I here? <laughs> you know? And so like there, and I think though that like, we're all going to always be put in situations where we kind of feel we don't deserve to be there, but it's okay. Like you deserve to be there. You're there for a reason, but you do have to do the work to stay there, you know? So don't get in those positions and then not do the work. Like, it's okay to not know, but really put forth the effort to know so that you do become an expert in whatever path, you know, you're placed in. So I think your your current role especially is a role that I wasn't aware of in, in the profession. And I think mm -hmm. the students at lunch might also agree that probably new to you too. So I'm guessing that when you were in pharmacy school, you did not imagine yourself in this place right now. No. <laughs> so what did you imagine for yourself? Well, I will tell you, I and I, and and I and there's probably people that know me that would say that know that I said this. I was like, I am going to retire at retail. Like that is what I loved, that is what I wanted to do. 
that is where I, you know, I, I wanted to be the youngest person with the most amount of experience because I knew you can't work till you're 16. And if I've been here since I was 16, like, no one's going to be my age and have this, <laughs> this many years of service, right? And so I was very proud of that. And I thought that that's, you know, what I was going to be. But, you know, that changes and it's okay to change your mind. I think when I was saying that, I didn't, I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. You know, working nights and weekends and working with my girlfriends was fun. Like, we had a great time. You know, we didn't, you know, we, we had a great time. And, and I made lifelong friends, <laughs> you know, working those years in retail. But then your life changes, you know, and your priorities change and things change. So it's okay as you change to change your mind. And so it probably was naive to think that I would do that for forever. So I certainly didn't imagine I'd be doing what I'm doing. I, I don't even now like the question. Someone recently asked me that, well, where do you see yourself in five years? I said, if I couldn't have seen myself here five years ago, I can't even <laughs> begin <laughs> to say what I'll be doing in five years. I have no idea. I don't even know that I know what I want to do in five years. But I think that you take those experiences. So even if you're doing something, and you're at a point in your career, and it's not working out, you can change it. Like you can go do something different. No one would have thought, I don't think, you know, they would think that I'm like this oncology expert. I did not do residency. I, I don't have an MBA. I, there's so many things that I don't have. But I think just with sheer like, I want to learn this, I want to get good at this, then opportunities start to present themselves. So even the role that I'm in now, I never would have guessed that I'd be doing this job. I don't think I would have even thought of applying had someone not mentioned it to me. And so, but when you're putting yourself out there and people see that you work really, really hard and you are confident, but not overly confident because you don't want that to be arrogance because that's a turnoff, I think people then trust you. And so when I walk into a practice now that I'm talking to an oncologist, I most times have really, really good interactions because I'm like, look, I know what it's like to work in practice. You know, I know what the challenges are. I know all the things that I had to learn. You guys are new. You're hiring a brand new pharmacist. Like, let me help them too so that they don't walk through all the pitfalls that I did. Let me set them up right now to have a network, a pharmacist. Let me tell you what are all the organizations you need to join. Let me, I tell the oncologist, you need to send your pharmacist to this conference. You know, so I like help guide them so that they don't have to spend years <laughs> trying to figure it out and help them make, help them make it easier for them. Like, don't do what I did. <laughs> like, let me tell I can save you five years. <laughs> you know? You're listening to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. So something that I've noticed throughout your career is you've been in leadership roles, first managing your pharmacy, um, and then, you know, at DuPage Medical Group, taking on greater and greater leadership roles, and now obviously um, in a leadership role. How did you... Did you always see yourself as a leader? How did you develop those skills? So, well, I don't think that I always saw myself as a leader. I don't know if it's my, my 
birth order. I don't know. I'm the oldest. I don't know what that is. And I think that probably doesn't even matter per se, but I just, I don't know. I I don't know really. I I don't know what the secret is (laughs) to being a good leader, but I think one of the things that I do know, and I remember always used to say it, even when I was a pharmacy tech, I'd be like, I don't understand why leaders don't take care of their staff because the better you take care of your staff, the better they'll take care of their patients. Like, I just knew that young. I I don't know how I knew that. I I remember thinking that. And I think I tried to live that, you know. So when I was, anytime I was in a position of leadership, I always wanted to think about it from the perspective of what can I do to help them do better? And when you operate like that, you build trust with your team. I have people that I could call them today and they come work for me. And I've had to pull those favors before when I was in clinical practice where I would call people and be like, where are you working now? What are you doing? I have a job. Will you come work for me? (laughs) And they literally will come. And I think that that is just because of years of making sure that I took care of my team. Like if there was a weaker tech and a stronger tech, I would work with the weaker tech. You know, I wouldn't give that tech to my partner at the pharmacy. Like I always just try to do the right thing, you know, and I think that people see that and then they trust you and then you're presented with leadership opportunities. I think kind of come along with that. We all have worked with people that we feel are not good leaders and that you learn something from them too. You know, you learn that it doesn't work to be dishonest. It doesn't work to be arrogant. It doesn't work. And people leave like you're going to have crazy turnover if you don't take good care of your team and so that is I just always felt that from being young like because I wanted that (laughs) you know and so I'm like I I, and I remember like why don't people understand that you know it's such a simple concept but if you really truly live by it you'll get leadership skills because people will trust you and that that's the best leader right someone that you can trust put your career in their hands you know that they they know that you're a person. And of course, with that too, you can't just like have people walk over you. So you, you know, with leadership, you take care of your team, but you know, there's discipline in there too, you know? So there are times when a weak team member can drag everybody down, right? And so you do, you know, being a strong leader, also you have to understand what it means to coach up or coach out. Like, you know, there's two ways. We, we prefer to coach you up, but we do have to understand if we can't coach you up, then we have, then you're gonna be coached out. And so you do have to make, you know, as a leader, it's not always fun. <laughs> you know, you gotta do the hard part of taking care of your team. And, and in that, it's good for team morale because no one likes to work with like the slacker or the person that's not pulling their weight. And so we wanna have those hard conversations and help them. Let's pivot a little bit to some of your professional work for the profession. So you're the founder of the Pharmacist Women's Network. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's kind of crazy too. <laughs> so I don't know. I was looking for a space really for pharmacist women. I was just kind of looking for this space and I like I wasn't finding it. And I remember, you know, being parts of other organizations and not, you know, that not being a fit. 
and then Googling things like, where is this group for like pharmacist women that's positive and uplifting and that we can network? And I just didn't find it. And so I'm like, well, if I don't see it, I'll just make my own little group. I know enough pharmacist women and, you know, and I started just, you know, kind of creating this Facebook page and inviting ladies that I knew in. And then they started inviting people in and it kind of just grew very organically. It grew. um, And then we're like, wait, we need to let pharmacy students in too, because they need to learn how to network. The younger, the sooner you start networking, the better. So we did that. And then I just remember talking about this to one of my drug reps that worked at AbbVie. And and we were talking and and I was like, you know, it'd be kind of cool if we could like get together. And she's like, I have a new drug that's for endometriosis. It's like a female thing, you know, and and I can get you a female onco- or gynecologist to come talk about this. And she's like, and I'll, you know, we'll host the dinner for you and you just invite all the pharmacists that you know in the group. And I did. And I remember being shocked. Like 50 pharmacist women came to the program, the first program, and I just couldn't believe it and people just kept coming up to me saying oh my goodness I can't believe nobody else thought of this this has been so much fun this was like what we needed and I just you know and it was just out of because I wasn't finding what I needed I created something that resonated with other pharmacist women and now pharmacy students too and and we have continued and we do stuff now also virtually because obviously we have women all over the country that are part of the group so we do virtual networking and then we do in-person networking once a month and I always have pharma partners that will partner and pay for the dinner so it's always free and even you know we encourage the women to like talk to the people that they don't know who are in the room because there's probably someone here who maybe you know you need that person or they need you you know so if you're looking to maybe change your career or move into something like the best way to do that is to get to know other people and you need to be a networker and you'll also be a beneficiary of networking as I know now in my role because I wouldn't have got it had I not networked you know someone called me I didn't even know my job was posted you know, someone texts me and was like, hey, do you want to come work on this team? You know, and those are the things that happen when you get to know other pharmacists. And and we do it in a way that it's not like, here, here's my resume. Can you give me a job? Like, no one's going to give you a job like that. It's random. They don't know who you are. <laughs> and it's not going to happen. But as you come to the events, and Laura, you know, you come to the events, you get to know the people that are there. It's typically about the same group of people in general. We get new people come, and you start to get to know the ladies there, and it's kind of cool because then it's like, well, you start talking to someone, and you're like, hey, you know, I'm hiring, and I'm looking for a pharmacist that does this, or hey, I'm looking, or I'm moving, or I'm, you know, and women have gotten jobs, which is just crazy that the idea works right so i tell people i'm like networking works and even our virtual networking events of women across the country we have i think i have a maybe a five or six chain of people who've all helped each other one got a job referred in someone from the group they got a job who then referred in someone from the group who got a job and you know and so we've seen this chain link of women who are just helping each other 
connect, they're connecting, they're networking, they're talking about what it is they're looking to do in their career. And it's not always easy to change careers. It can take time, but they're doing the, they're putting in the time and the effort to get to know other people and all the other things that go along with looking for a new job. They're doing those things and ultimately creating opportunities. And then what I tell them is that if you've been the beneficiary of someone who's helped you, please pass that on. Like put your hand back now, right? And bring the next one up. And so we are doing that, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, you're changing the profession. That's <laughs> crazy. So that brings me to my next question, which is really about diversity and representation mm-hmm. in the profession. And we, we're seeing the profession become more and more diverse. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful to see all the different pharmacists that we have now. Mm-hmm. The challenge that I think we still have is that leadership roles mm-hmm. do not have the same representation. Right. So my question for you is, what challenges, if any, have you encountered? Yeah. And what advice do you have? Yeah, so I could talk like for hours about this. I'll try to keep it short. So for sure, like it's awesome to see a diverse student group. I think that is our great step in the right direction because patients are diverse. And so I think it's good, one, to learn from your diverse colleagues because everyone ha- grows up different. Even if maybe you have the same skin color, you still might have a different culture, right? So it's good for us to understand other people's culture and to be empathetic towards people that are different because that helps us take better care of our patients, right? Because your patients, nine times out of 10, are gonna look different from you and be from different backgrounds, different cultures. So it's good to learn in that environment, it's great because that's the environment you're going to work in. Then, so we're seeing this change, which is awesome. But you're right, in leadership, we're still not seeing a diverse group of leaders. And I think that, I think women have come a long way. I think, you know, and it's still not probably where it should be. But I think, you know, I've worked at organizations where 40% of the leadership was female. Well, that's awesome. But then when we look at underrepresented minorities or underrepresented female minorities, that's not the case. You know, so we're still seeing that we're not getting the same amount of diversity in senior leadership of organizations as we are with the workforce. So the workforce is still not reflective. The leadership is not reflective of what the workforce looks like, which is frankly is a shame and something that I, I talk about pretty openly all the time because I actually, I don't know whose quote this was, but it was actually a president of another university here in the Chicagoland area said to me, well, you can't be what you can't see. And, and it's true. So we, you know, we have to, and I think once you are in leadership, I think your task um, as either a minority leader or an ally is that your task is to make sure that you are considering people that don't necessarily look like you for leadership positions. And I think, I know that a lot of companies, they don't do that. They end up, you know, and a lot of times part of that is the trajectory, right? So if you think about it this way where, and I I know of examples where two people have gone up for a position, one, is you know not a minority newer out of school one is a minority many many years of experience and if the person who's new out of school and younger 
gets that opportunity, their career trajectory is totally different and it's accelerated. And it's not that, you know, I don't begrudge anybody that, but if minorities are not getting the same, then you're not even getting to the place where you can get an opportunity to move into senior leadership because you're so far behind. And if we think about this, you know, if it takes me, and it has, I I did not get a director role until I was 43. And no matter all of what you, you just read about my background, I still struggled to move into leadership. And I frankly didn't know why, (laughs) you know, and I, I think I had my, I think I could guess why I was struggling to move into leadership positions is because I didn't look like leadership looked. I looked different. And so when I saw that was happening to me where I wasn't getting leadership opportunities and I didn't see a path, I'm now much quicker to move. So I'm not going to stay someplace where I'm not going to have a career trajectory that's been laid before me. I, and, and it's unfortunate because organizations lose good talent because a lot of times we have to bounce to move up, which you know is sad that, that, that it has to be that way, but it is. And so, and I've been in those situations. And when I think about the fact that I did not become a director of pharmacy until I was 43 years old is crazy to me. But if I'm not given that opportunity till I'm 43 and a, you know, my colleague, male colleague gets it at 33, well, where is he going to be in 10 years versus where I can be in 10 years? Not to mention that increases our wealth gap, right? And so the things that if, you know, if he gets plucked out at 33 and has this, you know, career trajectory that I'm 10 years behind on, by the time his kids are college age, he makes a totally different salary than I do at that same point where my kids are and at my age. So it literally, it, it affects the wealth gap. And it's a real thing. It, it happens. It's happened to me. I have to now be very, very vocal about what it is I'm trying to do when I work for an organization. I have very transparent conversations because I'm too old not to, you know, and I tell, I will say straight up, like, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm ready for the next thing and I would love to do it here. But if you guys don't see a path forward for me here, and this is, it's not a threat because I want to stay here, but if I don't see myself getting the opportunities that you're giving my non-minority colleagues at the same pace, then I, I will have to look for employment elsewhere. And it would be a shame because, honestly, I think I'm really good at my job right now. <laughs> it took some time to get there, but I am now. So I have to be very, very transparent about what it is I want to do. And I have to have those hard conversations with leadership because... I can't afford not to, you know? And then too, once you are in a position of making a change, I always made sure that when I was hiring, when I was in the position of being a hiring manager, that I had a diverse applicant pool or that I did what a lot of our, you know, non-minority male colleagues do. They call their friends that look just like them, right? (laughs) To apply. And so if I'm seeing, if I need people to apply for a position, I'm making sure that I'm calling a diverse, if I gotta reach out to my friend base or colleague base, that that is diverse, that those I'm giving diverse, I'm giving people who 
are underrepresented opportunities. And it's not that they're not qualified. Like, I think sometimes that's a misconception that, oh, well, you got to then take people who are not qualified. No, everybody, I'm not interested in hiring someone who's not qualified because that just makes my life harder, you know, as a leader. So I'm not reaching out to you if I don't think you can do the job and be good at it. And I did that for a Roosevelt student, Karen Clay, who went to school here, who was a phenomenal student that I had on rotation. She did a couple rotations with us, with our organization. And when I was looking for someone, because I knew she had such a phenomenal work ethic as a student, I called her, you know, I asked her if she would come work in the specialty pharmacy. That position ended up not materializing because someone else didn't come back from maternity leave. So I had a greater need in our oncology infusion center because of someone who decided not to come back after they had their baby. And I put her in that position. And I was like, you know, you were a great student. I loved working with you. I know you don't know oncology. We all got to learn somewhere, start somewhere. And gave her that opportunity. And it wasn't that she wasn't qualified. She was qualified to learn and do the role and is still there and doing a phenomenal, phenomenal job in that position. So as a leader, we have to take responsibility of making sure that we are giving people opportunities who don't necessarily look like us and that we're considering our applicant pool is diverse. And then as a minority, you will have to get, you know, you will have to figure out a way to be your own best advocate because we can't always wait for people to give, you know, to reach their hand back and help us up. We have to be vocal about that opportunity. And when I've done that, it was interesting because I had that conversation recently and the person I was having that conversation with said, oh, I had no idea that you were interested in these other things. I just assumed, and I was like, well, why are you assuming? Like, are you assuming because I don't look like you? (laughs) Like, why are you making those assumptions? Especially then, you know, oh, you've been great. Everyone has loved working with you. You've been, you know, so if I'm all those things, why didn't you call me about the opportunity? Like, why didn't you reach out to me? So again, we we still have work to do. But I think the one thing is you have to be your own best advocate. Don't dim your light because someone is not comfortable. I think that you do, that there's nothing wrong with being confident. Of course, you don't want to be arrogant. But I think you do have to understand that when you do become good at something, which is, you know, you do have to get over that imposter syndrome because that will squash you. So you do have to start to realize that you bring something valuable to the table. You have a skill set that is important. I have a knack for connecting with customers, and I talk about that. So, you know, I talk about the things that I do well. I understand the things that I need work on, uh, like submitting my expense report. I get in trouble for all the time. submit it on time um, or lose my receipts. So there are things that I know that I need to do better, but I do recognize the things that I do well. So hone in on the things that you do well, but understand there's things, you know, that you don't know and you have to learn. So you need to be humble about those things, but you have to be your own advocate. And when you are in a leadership position, make sure that you are going out of your way to make sure your applicant pool is diverse, figuring out ways that you have a diverse applicant pool. That is very, very important because diversity of thought actually typically 
lead you to have a more profitable and better organization. And one of the things that I even saw at a conference was I looked out the conference, the audience looked like this, it was diverse, but no one on stage was diverse. And I was like, see, this, like, we're watching this. Like, we want to make sure that, like, I don't, you know, that's great that the audience is diverse, but if everyone on stage, like, nobody is di looks different, like, what am I going to learn from this? Like, maybe there's a different experience that could, you know, a thought that can be learned from someone that doesn't look like you. So I think there still has to be a lot of work there. Trust me. I have been... <laughs> in situations that have not been good or fun and but you know they build character so so if anything you got to use those experiences to not dim yourself I think I've been in those situations where I just was like well maybe it's me well you know what it, it might not be you maybe it is and you need to fix some things but just if you're a hard worker and in general people really like you and like working with you but you're struggling to get into a leadership position, that organization maybe isn't right for you. And you know, and maybe you need to go shine someplace else. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of how I look at it now. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Wow. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening. <laughs>